We just sang from Psalm 68 that God is the defender of the fatherless and the widower. We're going to read a, a portion of the Old Testament where God did step in and become the defender, the redeemer of a defenseless widow uh, and uh, her fatherless sons. Please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, we'll read the first seven verses there. This is um, one of the, the first uh, uh, major miracles uh, performed by the prophet Elisha, and it tells us something wonderful about our great God who comes to the aid of those who are in need, those who are running on empty. This is God's holy word. Let's listen carefully to it. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. We're going to end the reading of God's holy word there. Keep your Bibles out, though. We're going to be thumbing through uh, a few other passages this morning. Well, I am not what you would call uh, an anxious driver. Driving doesn't bother me. I enjoy driving, but there is one experience related to driving that I don't like. And that is when I'm driving along, and suddenly I hear a ping on the dashboard, and the little light comes on telling me that I'm low on fuel. That bothers me. Uh, running low on fuel scares me. But one of the things that I've learned over the last four years of marriage is that my wife and I uh, interpret that little indicator differently. Uh, when my wife is driving... And that little light comes on indicating that the tank is almost empty. She's perfectly fine with it. She thinks she's got 30 miles left in the tank, and she just keeps going on. She th i got three or four trips left. Uh, when I hear that little ping and see the little light on the dashboard, um, this is how I interpret it. We need gas, and we need it right now. Uh, I'm envisioning stalling in an intersection somewhere. I'm envisioning clogging up the freeway because I didn't get gas when I was supposed to. I get very nervous. Uh, running on empty is not something that I wish to experience for very long. And so it is with life. Uh, when our resources are exhausted, when we are weak, when we are frail, when we have experienced uh, severe loss and disappointment, and we cry out to the Lord, in the dark of the night, in desperation, Lord, what are you doing? And why? When we're running on empty, that is not a, a pleasant experience for us 
as believers. It's an experience uh, of the widow here, this nameless widow in Elisha's miracle here in 2 Kings chapter 4. She's a widow who is uh, extremely destitute. Her resources are gone. She's at wit's end. And yet her needs are met perfectly by her covenant-keeping God. This passage here in 2 Kings 4 begins a list of events in Elisha's ministry where various miracles are worked by God to sort of reverse the problems in our broken creation, problems big, problems small. And we encounter something beautiful about God in this passage, namely that His needy people matter to Him. Uh, It teaches us that our God, the one true God of heaven and earth, is the help of the helpless. He's the defender of the anonymous. It's a wonderful, uh, beautiful display of God's compassion and His provision that He gives to the needy who have exhausted their resources, who are at wit's end, who are running on empty. But it's here to teach us something more about our great need for a Redeemer, a need perfectly met by our God in Jesus Christ. I want to spend some time first by looking at the situation of this nameless widow uh, here in 2 Kings chapter 4. And if we're going to really understand this miracle and its significance uh, for her and for us, it's helpful to put ourselves in her shoes for a few moments and to see just how extremely troubled she was in in this situation, how desperate uh, these times had come for her. We read that she has lost her husband. She's a widow. And widowhood throughout the Scriptures is an image always of loss, an image of emptiness. We also learn that she's a borrower. And if that's not bad enough, to live her life borrowing from others, we read that the creditor has come to take back his, what he has loaned to her. She's about to lose her sons, who are apparently too young to work at this point, but who will eventually be her lifeline, her heritage. He's about to take her sons away as slaves. You can really hardly imagine anyone more destitute, uh, someone running on empty, than this widow. And we may wonder, how did her situation get so bad? Well, there was no social security system in Israel, no welfare system. Uh, Oftentimes, usually, uh, people or property that that ended up in the hands of creditors could be, they bought back, it could be redeemed. It was responsibility especially of the the kinsman redeemer in each family to, to purchase back or provide for a family member that was in need or in debt. In in, in Leviticus chapter 25, beginning at verse 35, we read about the Lord's call uh, for a kinsman redeemer. If your brother becomes poor, God said to the people of Israel, if he can't maintain himself anymore, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Uh, Take no interest from him or profit uh, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor give him your food for a profit. You are to be merciful and generous towards this family member and care for them. Don't uh, bilk them of their funds, but care for them generously. Why? 
Why does God command that? Because he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I rescued you from slavery. This is the least that you can do, care for one another. We think of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth uh, had Boaz as her kinsman redeemer. And yet, for some reason, this widow doesn't, doesn't have a kinsman redeemer uh, or her redeemer is not fulfilling his obligation to her. There are other reasons to suggest that this widow's desperate situation is not her fault, but the fault of her neighbors, her, her community. God had uh, said that He was the defender of the fatherless and the widow, and He required the people of Israel to act justly, to be generous with widows and orphans, to make sure that they didn't fall out of the social care network of sorts. We read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. God had said to the people of Israel that uh, they should not pervert justice due to the sojourner or the fatherless. They shouldn't take a widow's garment in pledge. Why? Because they had been slaves in Egypt, and God had graciously brought them out. And so he goes on here and instructs Israel that when they're, when they're reaping their harvest, they shouldn't go over it two or three times, but leave some of the produce there for the, the, for the widow and the fatherless to pick up. When they take the olives off their trees, they should not go over them twice, but leave some there for those who need them. Same thing with the vines. Israel was called to care for those in desperate situations, and yet we have tragic circumstances here in 2 Kings chapter 4. That one of their own company, one of the, the wives of the sons of the prophets, in fact, should find herself in such desperate poverty is just another indication that the Word of God was not highly regarded in Israel in these days. And so the widow comes to Elisha, and there is desperation in her plea. Elisha, she says, your servant, my husband, is dead. He feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children. But there's also a measure of aggravation here, you notice. Your servant, she says, he feared the Lord. My husband was a godly man. He was a voice of truth in Israel, but the creditor is still coming. Her husband had been a servant of God. He had been one of the sons of the prophet, prophets. He was a voice of truth amidst the great apostasy and wickedness in Israel at the time. Her husband had believed and supported and, and proclaimed the Word of God at a time when his faithfulness probably cost him his life. The widow's husband had been one of the few in Israel who responded with an uncompromising, no way, to the idolatry in Israel. But now he's gone. And it seems that not even his past faithfulness to God could prevent his wife and his sons from falling into desperate poverty. Perhaps we can relate to the, not only the desperation, but the aggravation in her plea. Perhaps you've watched as a friend, a dear friend or a relative, known for their godliness, known for their selfless love of Christ and His church, fall prey to a debilitating disease or a, a life-ending cancer. 
God, she was a, a godly person. She loved you in your church, but the cancer has come back. Perhaps you prayed for a better work in a struggling economy, and all the while you give faithfully of tithes and offerings, you give Christian leadership in the home, but you wait and you wait and you wait for your situation to improve. Lord, I'm, I'm serving you, but the bills are still piling up. Perhaps you raised your child in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord. You catechized them. You sent them to Christian day school. You set a consistent example for them in the home of godliness. But they've turned their back on the church. Lord, I was a good parent, but my child is still lost. He was a man of God, Elisha, but the debt collector is still coming to take away my boys, my entire life. The widow faces the mysterious providence, the mysterious will of God, as we all do, and wonders, does God have any plan, any way to meet my need? Her plea is filled with desperation, but it's also laced with faith. You notice that she doesn't despair to the point of cursing God. She doesn't take matters into her own hand to try to circumvent the will of God in her life. What does she do? She cried, we read here, to Elisha, the man of God, God's voice, God's presence in Israel. She doesn't tell Elisha what to do. She doesn't make demands of him. She's at her wit's end, and she simply casts her cares upon God through His servant, the prophet. She's in trouble, to be sure, but she believes. And it's on account of her faith that Elisha eagerly comes to her need and asks, what, sh- what shall I do for you? What shall I do for you? Do you see the marvelous privilege that this wonderful woman of faith has? She has immediate access to God in the midst of her trouble. She may not enjoy high social status. She may not have the benefits of a social security system. She must not have a direct relative, a kinsman redeemer, to come to her aid and save her. But by faith, she has direct access to the one true God who alone is able to meet her needs. And all believers have that access through Jesus Christ, direct access by the Spirit to the throne of God And we can cry, Abba, Father, help me in my time of need. When the the nights are long and the troubles hang upon us, we have direct access to our Heavenly Father in prayer. And we see that in the absence of a kinsman redeemer to meet her need, God Himself steps in, and He becomes her provider through Elisha. And what follows here in this miracle? I want you to notice that we learn some beautiful things about the ways that God typically uh, reveals Himself as the caretaker, the provider of His church. First, notice with me where God typically begins in meeting the needs of His people. Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she responds, Your servant has nothing except a jar 
of oil. Now, we read a lot about oil in the Bible. In fact, a little over 200 times uh, oil comes up on the pages of Scripture, and the reason for that is it was much like sugar and flour today. It was a staple uh, of ancient Near Eastern society. Oil had many uses in that society, uh, for food, of course, uh, for cosmetics and, and fuel for lamps. It was used in, in making medicines uh, for anointing people, for offering sacrifices. It's a very common element to have. And what's significant about that is that this widow is in such dire straits, her situation is so bad that she has only a small portion of the most basic commodity of life. She has just one jar of oil left. And what that's meant to communicate to us is that she has an utter lack of resources. God is, is starting with practically nothing in her case to meet her need. Now, some prosperity preachers might look at this and say, well, you know, the widow really just needed to be shown that her situation was better off than she thought. Elisha's question is really just a cue that he's about to break into a pep talk entitled, How to Make the Most Out of the Little That You Have. So that this woman responds, you know what, that's right. I forgot about that jar of oil in the cupboard. I think I'm better off than I thought. I can do this. That's not the point of this passage. Not at all. Now, the widow probably had no clue at all as to why Elisha wanted to know the status of her oil supply. And her response, I have nothing except that small amount of oil is meant to show us just how destitute she is, how inadequate her supply is, how utterly incapable she is of improving her own situation. And that's where God typically begins. That's where God typically begins. God begins with the very item that symbolizes our helplessness and our destitution, and He makes it the means of His help to show the surpassing glory of His character and His power. On our behalf. I think of what Jesus asked His disciples in Mark 6, at the feeding of the 5,000 men. He asked His disciples before this great crowd, how many loaves do you have? A question that probably annoyed the disciples just a bit. Well, Jesus, take a look. We have only this small amount of loaves and, and fish, far too little to feed so many. And that's where Jesus begins by showing His divine power to provide their basic needs by beginning with only five loaves and two fish. That's where God begins typically, with next to nothing, in order to demonstrate His surpassing power and greatness. And next, Elisha gives the widow some bewildering instructions. He says to her, this is how I'm going to provide for you. Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few. Don't skimp. Bring as many as you can find. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Rather bewildering instructions that the widow must have received with at least some question in her mind. How odd, we might think, that Elisha would tell the widow to do something that would, in effect, put her destitution, her poverty, out there for everyone to see. We might be a little embarrassed. We have to go next door and borrow a cup of sugar or flour. We might be embarrassed if we run out of gas and stall on the side of the road and have to walk a couple miles to a gas station. 
Indeed, her neighbors must have wondered, why does she need all of these vessels? We know she doesn't have anything to put in them, so poor she is. God is calling her to act in faith. He's calling her to act in faith in response to His Word. And once again, her faith shines forth. That's exactly what she does. She follows Elisha's somewhat bewildering instructions to the letter. Not once does the text give us any indication that she doubted, that she hesitated, that she complained and said, Elisha, I'd rather do something else. She trusted the Word of God. She obeyed Elisha's instructions, even though by doing so, she publicized her destitution to the whole neighborhood. And then, the na- and then the miracle occurred. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. Our passage doesn't give us a lot of detail here. It's very short, very pithy. But we can imagine the amounting excitement in the room as God provided so uniquely for her and her sons. You can imagine one of her sons, maybe both of them crying out, Mom, the oil, it's still coming. Quick, bring me another jar. And then when the provision was made, when there were no more vessels left to fill, the oil stopped flowing. We recognize that the oil didn't stop flowing because this woman and her sons had run out of faith. That's not the point. God's provision didn't even require their obedience. But God often supplies our needs while at the same time building our faith, cultivating our obedience in the process to show us that His provision is more than sufficient to meet our exact needs. And that was the case here for the widow and her sons. Their exact needs were met in a miraculous and perfect way. She tells the man of God how things went, and he says, go sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. The provision of this great miracle would pay for and effectively cancel their debt and secure a future for them. All because God stepped in to be their kinsman redeemer. Brothers and sisters, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we abide in Him and cast our cares upon Him, plead upon Him and His character, He promises to meet our needs perfectly through Jesus Christ in a way, in a measure that is truly best for us. He can do that. We read in Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 9, because He is Almighty God, and He desires to do so. He will care for our needs because He is our Heavenly Father who loves us for Jesus' sake. Well, it's important to notice finally that this miracle would have been impossible to keep a secret. Couldn't have kept it from the neighbors. Even though the door was shut when the miracle occurred, the neighborhood would have heard about it. And I think that was the point. After all, the woman had to go eventually back to her neighbors and return the vessels, return the jars, and they would have liked to have known. So why did you need those in the first place? And she would have had to explain what took place in that glorious miracle. You see, this miracle was not meant for her and her sons alone. 
This miracle was meant for the entire church, the entire community of Israel. In fact, it was nothing short of a call to conversion, a call to repentance. In hearing about how God had stepped in as the kinsman redeemer for this poor widow, the community of Israel should have been confronted with their guilt for their selfishness, for their materialism, for their failure to follow God's law and provide for the widow and the poor in their midst. Those who heard about this miracle should have been pricked in their consciences, recalling how unfaithful they had been. But it was at the same time a marvelous testimony of God's covenant faithfulness, His patience, His long-suffering with His people. It would have reminded the people of Israel, even in their sin, that God remained a provider and an upholder, a kinsman redeemer for those who feared Him according to His Word. Those who heard about this miracle should have realized that they too lived and were sustained only by the grace and the mercy of their covenant-keeping God. They would have learned the message that if they repented, if they turned once again back to God as their kinsman redeemer, they too would again enjoy the riches of life in His covenant and enjoy the promised benefits of mercy through the coming Savior, the Redeemer of Israel, who would Himself pay the immense debt of their sin and their covenant unfaithfulness. You see, the miracle of this nameless widow's provision is a prefiguration. It's a foreshadowing of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. Jesus Christ was their Redeemer, as He is our Redeemer. We too, like the people of Israel, uh, like this widow, lived in a state of destitution, spiritual poverty, no resources left to work our way back to God. We all, like her, had a mortgage not on our home, but on our souls, a debt we could not pay. But our provider God has paid it Himself by sending His own Son as a ransom for our souls, His Son coming as our own kinsman redeemer, the guarantee of a better covenant by offering Himself up as a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. And through the shedding of His blood, He has secured immeasurable riches for us, even the inheritance of a redeemed and a restored new heavens and earth where we will dwell eternally with Him, singing the new songs of redemption. Praise God. For Jesus Christ, our perfect kinsman redeemer. And if that who is Jesus Christ is, if He is our kinsman redeemer provided for us by God Himself to rescue us from sin and Satan and death and hell, for what else can we count on Him? What knowledge, what comfort must we draw from this miracle, this passage? I want to close with just three small things. We learn from this passage that God cares for the needs of His people, be they great or small. 
Paul in Ephesians 2.18 says, through the blood of Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father so that we can bring our troubles to Him. We have a tremendous mercy before the throne of God. We can cast every care, every trouble, be it great or minor, before God, and He cares for us. He meets our needs for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you have no need to worry, my children. God cares for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field which perish. You, who have been recreated after the image of Jesus Christ, you have no need to worry. Cast your cares upon the Lord, for He loves you and He will meet your need. Secondly, we notice from here that our weakness, our want, our lack of resources is an opportunity for God's strength and God's power to shine. God often uses uh, periods of trouble. He brings us through periods of need, of want, to prove the sufficiency of His grace for us. That was something that the Apostle Paul had to learn. He reports on that in 2 Corinthians 12. He pleaded with the Lord to remove some sort of thorn in His flesh that it would leave Him. But he says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content, I'm satisfied with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we are at wit's end, when we're running on empty, when our resources have been used up, and we are weak and frail and crying out to the Lord, sometimes that is the most powerful opportunity for God to demonstrate His strength and sufficiency in our lives. Finally, God chooses to build our faith through weakness. Sometimes we, like the widow when we come before God and, and we are perplexed by His mysterious will, and there's aggravation, there's questioning in our lives about what He is doing and why, we need to remember that God chooses to build our faith through weakness. This account, this miracle, does not teach us to believe harder in order to receive more. That's the false gospel of prosperity and faith healing. In the end, God doesn't even require our uncompromised faith or perfect obedience in order to meet our needs, but it is nevertheless the case that God does often work both through our neediness and through, uh, through His provision to exercise our faith, to build our trust in Him rather than circumvent it. One commentator says this, he God tends to pull us into the process. He makes us participants rather than spectators. And when God provides for us, whether amazingly or routinely, He frequently designs not merely to supply our need, but to build our faith, to spark our obedience in the process. God chooses to build our faith through weakness. This miracle it's all about God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's all about God's delivering us from spiritual bondage. 
The curse of sin, the trials of life, threaten to enslave us all. But through Jesus Christ and Him alone, we are freed from that slavery. And we receive from the Lord as much as we have learned to expect by believing in His Word. Friends, He is your kinsman redeemer. He is your daily provider. Believe Him. Believe His Word and His promise. Put your faith and your confidence and your trust in Him and know with certainty that when you plead for mercy from Him, when you pour out your complaints to Him, when you tell Him about all of your troubles, you can be confident that He knows your way. He is your refuge. He is your portion in the land of the living. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for this small miracle at the outset of Elisha's ministry, but a miracle that portrays so beautifully, so powerfully Your sovereign care for Your church. We thank You that You are not a God who is so high and mighty or sovereign that You do not care even for the smallest needs of Your saints. We thank You that in our weakness and in our want, you, Your strength and Your power, Your sufficiency shines forth. And Lord, as we face Your mysterious will from time to time, help us to remember that You are building our faith through such weakness. Lord, You are a good and gracious covenant God, worthy of all of our praise and honor. We give You thanks that You are working through the best means possible to conform your saints to the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in Him we have been rescued fully and freely from all powers that would rule over us, be they sin, suffering, Satan, or hell. We thank you that we have life, we have rescue, we have eternal blessedness through Him and Him alone. Thank you for meeting our needs so perfectly. May our lives be a response of gratitude and worship for all who you are and all that you have done. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's sing to the Lord once again, turning to number 159, 159 in the Psalter hymnal. Abide with me. This is really a prayer. The Lord would care for us, would meet our needs as His people and glorify His name through us. Let's sing all those stanzas, all five of those, as we stand to sing, Abide With Me, number 159.
Your saints of God, receive now the parting blessing of our God. The love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.